The Old Testament reading from Malachi chapter 3. See, I am sending my messenger to prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, indeed, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the descendants of Levi and refine them like gold and silver until they present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. See, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the teaching of my servant Moses, the statutes and ordinances that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the day, the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents so that I will not come and strike the land with a curse. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, O Lord. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead could mean. Then they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He said to them, Elijah is indeed coming first to restore all things. How then is it written about the Son of Man, that he is to go through many sufferings and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written about him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's uh, pray together. 
Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on uh, this story of the transfiguration this morning, that you give us understanding and wisdom and curiosity that we might be individuals who behold the glory of Jesus in our own following of him. Meet us, we ask, Father, Son, and Spirit in our time. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, Advent gives way to Christmas, so we move from that period of waiting uh, and uh, looking into all that is wrong in our world and our lives, right, sitting with the angst of that a little bit, looking for God, how he might show up, to celebrating the birth of Jesus as the way in which he does show up. And then today we sort of move toward Epiphany, which is officially tomorrow, right, when we mark that the gift of Jesus is not just a gift that's limited or confined to, to Israel, to the people of God in the Old Testament, or you know, as we conceptualize that, but, but actually, Jesus is a gift for the whole world. His light is for the nations. His light is for people like all of us, uh, that we might come to his light and find ourselves being transformed uh, into his likeness. So this morning, we're jumping back into Mark's gospel, which we left off with, right, if you remember, right at the beginning of Advent, or right at the, just as Advent, it was starting the Sunday before Advent, and we ended with chapter 8, and we're jumping into chapter 9, so we're leaping forward, you know, you know, way from Jesus' birth as a babe, right, uh, into this much later moment of his life, uh, a moment actually that is nearer the end of his life, as he moves toward the cross, this moment of transfiguration, um, and the story that we just read uh, happens, we're told, Mark says, six days after that previous event, right? So let me just take us back to that event in chapter 8, right? At that moment, right, Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, well, who, who am I? Who do the people say that I am? And who do you, more importantly, those of you that have been near me, who do you say that I am? And Peter, because he's bold, right? We see that here in this story as well. He's bold and he fills the gap, right? He fills the silence. And he says, well, you're the Christ, right? The son of the living God. And, and Jesus affirms that God has brought revelation to his heart. He's connected the dots well at this point. And then Jesus begins to elaborate for Peter and for the other disciples what it means that he is Messiah. And one of the things we've seen throughout our study of Mark is that Jesus is always sort of blowing up our categories, right? He's pushing against our expectations. He's showing us here that Messiah is really different from the way you might have conceptualized the Messiah. The kingdom of God is coming differently than you might have expected by war, for example. Um, because Jesus begins to talk about his own suffering and death. That he is a king indeed, but he says, I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to take up the cross. And Peter, right, in that another bold moment of Peter, he says, you know, Jesus, I think you've got the plot, line, the plot line wrong, right? You've missed this up, right? You've missed the point. You're not understanding the role of Messiah. Well, this is really what's going on in Peter's head. Like, Jesus, what are you thinking? What are you talking about? You're talking nonsense. And at that point, Jesus poignantly says what? Get behind me, Satan. It's a bold rebuke of Peter, right? But one of the things we tried to say then and understand is that it's also an invitation to Peter. In other words, will you get behind me? Will you literally, right, situate your life, your expectations, your understanding of Messiah, your understanding of the kingdom of God, will you get behind the real Messiah? 
Will you let him reveal to you who God is, right? Uh, rather than living with a Messiah of your own making or a God of your own dreams and design, will you let the real God reveal to you who he is in the person of Jesus who will suffer and who will die? Now, here's the challenge. That is not a problem that was limited or confined to a disciple like Peter or any of the others who were probably silently thinking the same kinds of things that Peter was thinking, right? That is my problem. That is your problem, right? Because the moment you sort of say, well, I want to take Jesus seriously. I want to sort of understand his story. I want to understand who he is. I want to understand what he's about. I want to understand what it might mean to be a Christian. The moment you do that, it means that you are signing up for a lifetime of confusion, joy, because you're going to find out over and over again that our human inclination is always to push upon and against the divine revelation of who God is in Jesus. We have our own ideas about who God ought to be. I have my own ideas about what a Messiah ought to be. I have my own ideas about what salvation for Tuck ought to look like, and you have your own ideas as well. But Jesus is constantly reaching toward us and constantly bringing us sort of cyclically, if you will, on a journey of salvation that always includes reconnecting with Jesus and understanding and hearing these very words, will you get behind me? Will you let go of your dreams? Will you get behind my dreams? Will you let go of your conception of the kingdom of God and get behind my conception of the kingdom of God? Will you let go of your insistence on what I ought to be and be like? And will you let me reveal to you the loving Savior that I am. And that's the story of Jesus and our story as a Christian. And so interestingly, this morning in this story of the transfiguration, Jesus invites Peter, James, and John, just the three of them, to sort of go off on their own up the mountain. You know, Jesus is always in the habit of, of doing what? Of sort of, of re retreating, if you will, from the crowds, right? And, and he would be in spaces of prayer where he'd be in communion with God. And maybe this is that kind of moment where Jesus is retreating, but he invites Peter, James, and John to sort of take that retreat with him, to go up on the mountain with them. And it's there that they sort of are brought into a very strange experience that we call the transfiguration. It's where they begin to see Jesus, not in the ordinary way that they saw him every day, but in this luminous way, in this amazing way, in his glory. So I want us to think about the story this morning, and there are three sort of dimensions of it, if you will, that I think we should think about and understand how it might connect with our own life with God, our own life with Jesus. So the three things are this, the glory the glory of Jesus, the company of Jesus, and the voice of Jesus. So glory, company, and voice. Let's think about these things. The glory of Jesus, right? So Jesus refuses the popular stereotypes of the Messiah. That's consistently what he does throughout the, the Gospel of Mark. He's constantly pushing against those stereotypes and revealing himself to be a different kind of Messiah. Now, if you were the disciples... And you were in that previous event with Peter and the others in which Jesus is, is revealed as the Christ, but on the other hand, he starts to talk about suffering and, and death, right? What would be in your mind? Like, where would your head go? What would be happening to you emotionally? What would be happening to you in your feelings, right? As you're listening to this particular moment unfold, the Messiah talking about his death, you can only imagine, perhaps, how confusing Jesus was to the disciples. Right? 
he was confusing. They, they didn't get him. He was a mystery in, in so many ways. They're sort of drawn towards him to hold on to him, to follow him. And yet Jesus is constantly taking them through these spaces of sort of, sort of fog where things just feel muddled and confusing. Have you ever felt that way? In your own sort of following of Christ, your own trying to understand the mystery of reality, trying to understand what it means to be a human being in the world, that's where the disciples are in this particular moment. Peter is the one who's taking it on the chin in behalf of everyone else, right, with his own rebukes, right? Um, and so this moment in which Jesus says, hey, come, come with me up onto the mountain, uh, this moment is a profoundly important moment in their life of faith. And it's there that Jesus allows them to see the story beneath his life. They see the glory of Jesus in a way that's been sort of hidden by the familiarity of Jesus, if you will, right? Jesus the rabbi, Jesus the teacher, Jesus the, the son of Joseph and Mary, Jesus the carpenter, Jesus, the, you know, the itinerant rabbi, right? This, all of the ways in which they every day experience Jesus, all of a sudden they begin to see a shift, a glory, the hidden glory of Jesus. And as Mark tries to dis describe this moment, which is truly weird, right? I mean, I, I think we have to acknowledge that this is a strange moment. I don't know if you've gone on retreats before, or maybe, you know, you've, you've been with a friend, a close friend before, and I don't know if you've ever seen them transformed in some luminous way. Maybe you have, you know, but I don't know. Most of us, this feels like a really weird, strange thing to be happening. But, and so the, what's interesting is that the gospel writers, as they try to describe it, or as Mark describes it here, all he can say is that Jesus' clothes didn't look like they came from earth, right? It's like that there was, a, there was some, some brightness about it and that no laundering on earth could ever sort of uh, uh, create or, 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 or establish, right? That Jesus looks, in a sense, this, this glowing, luminous quality to his life, he seems to be caught up, maybe even more fully than they realized in this future of God's coming kingdom. There's just this dazzling brightness about him. And yet, he's clearly Jesus. He's the Jesus they know. It's a surprising, mystical experience that I think feels strange to us. I've not tried to understand this. One of the essays of C.S. Lewis that came to my mind was one that we've referenced a number of times across the history of City Church, but it's the weight of glory in which Lewis says essentially about human beings that there is a glory direction inside of each person, right? So inside of me and inside of you, our lives, our deepest selves are journeying, if you will, towards glory, or he says the opposite, towards a nightmare of our own existence, right? And, and you've experienced that tension in your own life. I've experienced it in my life. You may be experiencing this morning when you think, I feel like my life is moving more in the nightmarish direction than in the glory direction. How do I get the glory, right? And so Lewis says that this is true of every human being you've ever met, but here's the thing. Most of the time through our ordinary human interactions, you don't see the glory or the nightmare. You certainly don't see the depths of it. You don't understand the reality of that trajectory because we interact with one another in such superficial ways sometimes, don't we? Listen to what Lewis says. He says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses 
to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Who are those uninteresting human beings in your life today? That if you saw the glory beneath them, you'd be tempted to worship. And it would stun you, it would shock you. He says, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare, all day long we are, to some we are in some degree helping each other to one or either of these destinations. It's an interesting premise. Lewis points, Lewis's point, I think, is just simply this. That every human being that you ever meet is more than meets your eye. They're more than meets your eye. There's more going on in their lives than you are aware of or you could ever be aware of. There's a growing sort of internal greatness or a growing internal nightmare inside of their lives. The trajectory is moving toward glory or away from it, toward God or away from God. Now think about this personally in your own life for just a moment. St. Ignatius says, <clears throat> gives us a very helpful way of thinking about our everyday lives. He says that we should essentially, in a moment of examination, that at the end of the day, that we should ask the Holy Spirit to take us back through our day, to sort of reflect on what happened when I first got up this morning, what happened after I ate breakfast, what happened in that first interaction of the morning, either in an email or a text message, or as I read the news, or as I was interacting with persons in the office or in my room or wherever you are, right? What we should begin to discern is ask the Spirit to help us to think about the ordinary spaces of our own lives personally, not thinking about your spouse or your friend or your daughter or your neighbor or your colleague in the workplace at this point, but thinking simply about your own interactions. And he says, where did you feel or experience God's consolation? That is a deep interior sense that your life is moving, if you will, in the trajectory of glory that you're connecting more deeply with the likeness of God. Or the opposite, a desolation in which your life is moving away from that connection with God and so away from your truer self, right? Ignatius is helping us think about that personally. Now blow that up into the world. Lewis says that's going on for every single person that you ever meet. Are you aware of that in your interactions? So here we are in a moment with the disciples in which their disappointment and their confusion about Jesus is palpable. And in this moment of transfiguration, Jesus lets them see the glory trajectory of his own life. I, I don't know how to explain it except that somehow in that moment on the mountain, in that space of retreat, they recognize not just that Jesus is God in person in our world, but more importantly, that his life is moving in this glory trajectory of God's kingdom that has come to earth and that he, yes, can be trusted. You can trust him to take some next step of faith. You can imagine how helpful it would be if you're in your own moment of confusion and you're reading the story of Jesus and you stumble into the space of the transfiguration story and what is it meant to give you except a sense that he can be trusted? That God has woven his life into this glorious future and you're getting to see the underside of that, the thing that's so often hidden in the familiarity of everyday life. So the glory of Jesus now. Second, 
the company of Jesus. In the same essay, Lewis says that all day long, week after week, we are helping one another along in one direction or another. Now, that's the hard part of what he says because what he means is that we live life in community. And you can't get away from living life in community. And we are interacting with one another in such a way that we move each other towards a greater expression of ourselves or away from that, right? Have you ever had that feeling? Some people you encounter, they sort of trigger you in the direction of wanting to go away from your better self, right? Surely you've had this moment where you've said things you wish you hadn't said or you've thought thoughts at least that you wish you weren't thinking. But we're moving away from a better example of our own selves, If you go see a therapist, particularly a marriage and family therapist, one of the things they're going to always help you try to understand, to bring to light, if you will, in your own life, is that your life has been lived up to now inside of a constellation of relationships that you may not be fully aware of. And it's not just a constellation of relationships that happen in time, as in your family of origin, but it's through time. It's generational. And we continue in these trajectories of glory that are passed on or these trajectories of horror that are passed on. That is the nature of being a human. You live life inside of some relational and community context. And maybe you're aware of it and maybe you're not. And maybe you know how to live inside of a hard relational context and maybe you don't. But the hope of scripture is this. The story of the Bible tells us that God has not left us to our natural set of relationships alone. That's good news. When I think about my family of origin and my own struggles and how I sort of perpetuate sort of generational sin and generational brokenness, when I look at how that reactivity inside of my own life gets transmitted to my own kids, I am so glad that I live inside of a world in which God has struck up a conversation with humanity and he invites us into a larger conversation, a larger community, a spiritual family of connections. And one of the things I think we see here in this particular text is that Jesus is a part of this spiritual family, this larger work of God. In this very odd moment of transfiguration, we see not only the trajectory of glory within Jesus' life, but we meet two figures from the past, Elijah and Moses, right? And who are they? They're great persons of faith, right? That the prophets of old understood in some sense would precede Jesus. The moment of fulfillment at the end of time when God would bring justice and goodness to the land forever. Deuteronomy 18 speaks of a future coming prophet like Moses or Malachi 4 that we read earlier of the return of Elijah at the end of time. And maybe the point that's being made in showing the disciples this company, which by the way, have no idea how they knew this was, how do you know? How do you know what Elijah looks like? How do you know what Moses looks like, right? But maybe Jesus talked to them about this in the the dialogue that we're not exposed to. I don't know. But the point seems to be something like this. That the plot line of Jesus' life is caught up into this spiritual community of God's people throughout time. That whatever is happening in the person of Jesus, even this story about suffering and dying, it's a part of all that God has been saying to people before Jesus.
Jesus' life is woven into the promises of God that these men inside of their own lives related to. This very old promise of God is continuing and concluding in the person and the story of Jesus who would suffer and die and rise. And so here immediately, it's another moment in which these three disciples are invited to recognize the connection of Jesus with all of the promises of God. I appreciate that Mark notes that they were terrified, right? Because it helps me recognize, you know, I think I would be freaked out by a moment like this, and they seemingly were freaked out too, and once again, Peter seeks to fill the void. Hey, let's build some dwelling places, a few booths, right? Maybe he's sort of thinking about the Jewish festivals or something, but he's caught up in this weird moment, right, of, hey, let's camp out. (laughs) Let Moses have a tent and Elijah have a tent, and Jesus, you have your tent too. It's just a weird moment of comic relief in the midst of what had to be terrifying. Jesus showed Peter, James, and John that the promised deliverance of God was upon them, even though they didn't understand the narrative, the words that Jesus was saying about his own suffering and death. In the midst of suffering and death, God was bringing his deliverance. His life, Jesus' life, is intimately connected with the company of spiritual leaders, the company of those saints that precede him, intimately woven into their lives. He's acting out of that faithfulness, too, here in the space of his own earthly life. The glory and the company. Do you understand how you live inside of a spiritual community? Do you understand that your life is like Jesus's interwoven and invited into that larger community of God's people across time and within time? The author of Hebrews reminds us that even now we live amidst the company of saints departed, right? Who preceded us as a cloud of witnesses, the author of Hebrews says. Think about the cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 11 and Hebrews 12 as as the author sort of shifts gears and invites us in light of their witness to run, right? To set our eyes on Jesus and run with endurance this life of faith. So in other words, keep getting behind Jesus. It's almost as if, have you ever watched a... Have you ever watched a parent or the audience of adults watching a young toddler learn to walk, right? Have you ever seen those moments when when they're moving from cruising around the coffee table, holding on for dear life and looking at your hand across the room and wanting desperately to move there but afraid that if they move there they might fall or whatever? Have you ever watched those moments? What do the adults in the room do? You what? You cheer them on. You say, come on, you've got this. And that's the image that the author of Hebrews is bringing up for our own minds, that you live your life with Jesus in the company of the saints of heaven, and they are like parents saying, come on, hold on, follow Jesus. So what is the company in your life that most defines your reality this morning? What is that cloud of witnesses? Are you stuck only with the natural set of relationships that you were born into? 
with all of those stories, some of which have left you with a little, a little snippet of glory and a sense of what greatness is, and others that have sort of left you spiraling away from glory towards some diminished vi- version of your own self. What, are, you, are you stuck there? Or have you been drawn up into this sort of, this, this genealogy of grace that God has infused the world with because he's striking up a conversation And the conversation is continuing in the person of who Jesus is. The glory, the company of heaven, now finally the voice of Jesus. This is such a beautiful moment as they're on the mountain. And it's it's, it's not the glory that sort of strikes my imagination so much. It's the voice from heaven. And it's this voice from heaven that we've heard before, right, at Jesus' baptism. This is my son, the beloved. And only now the voice adds, listen to him. Listen to him. This is my son, my beloved son. Listen to him. The only other time the voice from heaven is heard is at Jesus' baptism. So think for a moment about his baptism, what's happening there. Baptism is a symbolic moment in which Jesus steps up into the river, And he asked John to baptize him. Why? Because he's sinful? No. But because he wants and longs to identify with the people of God who are sinful. In other words, in baptism, Jesus says essentially, I know the dark trajectory of your life. I know the nightmare. And I want to identify with your nightmare and so he weds himself to our nightmare right he weds himself essentially to our worst self to the to the way that we spiral out away from our true humanity to the way that we spiral away from the likeness of God to all of those spaces of desolation in your life in baptism Jesus says mine and when the father sees that the father is delighted and he says This is my son who lives and holds power and greatness like a servant who loves to the very end of his life, who gives himself away for the sake of others. This is my son, my beloved son. And now we have these added words, listen to him. And it's not happening in a moment of symbolism. It's not happening in a moment of Jesus' symbolic action at the very beginning of his public ministry. This is happening well into the trajectory of Jesus' own life, right, which he's steadily been taking up. What would it look like for me to identify with these sinful, broken individuals whose lives spiral away from God? What would it look like for me to do? What's going to look like crucifixion? So Jesus is well into the path of crucifixion, and in this particular moment, as he's taking up sort of life in our world, as if our own trajectory were his own, the Father says, listen to him. Listen to him. Get behind this Jesus, my beloved. And almost immediately, Jesus begins to tell them, what? We've seen it before. Hey, don't tell anyone, right? Keep quiet about all this. And then he begins to, so the disciples have their questions about Jesus and about, you know, the coming of Elijah at the end of time. And, and Jesus pulls these interesting threads together as he begins once again to sort of 
forecast his own suffering in a sense. This is a moment when he pulls opposite ideas from different places of scripture together, right? It's a title and a promise out of the book of Daniel, the son of man, right? The promised kingly judge that would bring justice to all the earth once and for all time. And then he reaches into Isaiah's prophecy about the suffering servant who, right, who, who, would, who would live a life of anguish and suffering in behalf of the people of God. And Jesus pulls both of those threads together and he says, in my life, this is how the kingdom comes. He holds them together. You see, the biblical story paints our problem, my problem, your problem, as a problem of our own glory and splendor. Our lives are moving all the time back and forth in these trajectories, glory, nightmare. And that's the tension of what it means to be a human being living a life away from God. Humanity is created in the glorious likeness of God and yet we pull away from him and we live away from him and we don't listen to him. Jesus' voice and his life died his life risen, his life risen in glory is the voice, if you will, that moves our lives into a trajectory of glory. Back toward the likeness of a God who loves us and delights in us. You and I are born for the splendor and the glory of sonship like that of Jesus's. To inhabit the world as beloved children of God. And the way into it is to get behind Jesus's glory. And we do that as we take up our own cross and we begin to follow him in his path into the world itself. And the moment you do that, it's always going to feel conflictual. So it's a new year and it's a new decade. And so the question I have for myself and I have for us as a congregation, for you individuals, we're speaking individually, right? It's just this, how do you need to get behind the glory of Jesus this year? What would it look like for you to listen to him as the Father encourages us to do here? What would that look like for you? What would it look like for you if you sort of live toward God with an open hand, right? You know what I mean by that? That Instead of walking through life sort of with your fists clenched around your vision of your own life and your vision of who you must be and your vision of what goodness is and your vision of the kingdom, what if you live before God and just open-handedly and the moment you open your hands, it's always going to bring you into a space, sometimes of fog and uncertainty. It's going to bring you into a space in which you, you're like, I don't know what you want of me. Have you ever felt that with God? What would it look like for you to live before the Lord with a divine sense of sort of indifference? That you only want that which God wants. And you want your own human existence, your work as a human being, your vocation as a human being, across relationships, across spaces of real work, across decisions that you have to make about where you live and where you don't live and so on and so forth. What would it look like if you just simply lived with this abandon to the voice of a God who loves you? And who invites you to, in relationship with Jesus, to hear these words of the Father. This is my son, my beloved son. This is my daughter, my beloved daughter. 
you are my beloved. What would it look like for you to live with that as the compass by which you make decisions inside of everyday life? It will almost immediately invite you to stop living reactively out of some broken story in your past or out of some broken reality that's even happening in your present because you'll be able to show up in the world as a son or a daughter who is much beloved by the Father, even amidst your own hopes and your fears and your confusion. A passage like this is meant for us to read and to see the glory trajectory of Jesus' life amidst our confusion so that we individually and we collectively as God's people take the next step of faith. We just keep listening. We keep following this Savior who has come into the world. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we continue to think on these words of Scripture that certainly are strange to us, that we would see the beauty of them and we would hear, more importantly, the beauty of your words over the life of Jesus, our Savior. And we would understand that they are words that you invite us to live beneath as well. Would you meet us, Father, Son, and Spirit? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.